Hey there, hi there, who there? Oh, wait, you know who you are, but do you know who you're listening to? Uh-huh, it's the Paul Leslie Hour. Hey, did you all hear about the new season of My Next Guest Needs No Introduction with David Letterman? Word is, it'll be out May 20th on Netflix. And to think of David Letterman is to think of Eddie Brill, whom Paul got a chance to interview. Now, this was originally broadcast on radio. Eddie Brill is a comedian, a comic. But as you'll soon be able to tell from this interview, he's a man with a lot of stories to tell. He seems to be a busy guy, too. Just look at his resume. Not only he's a comedian, for years he was the warm-up comic on The Late Show with David Letterman. And Eddie Brill not only performs his brand of stand-up comedy regularly throughout the USA and the United Kingdom, but in many other parts of the world. In this interview, Eddie Brill talked about not only his comedy, but his appreciation for the talent of other stand-up comics. He also talked about his work with Reader's Digest and appearing as a cartoon on the show Dr. Katz, Professional Therapist. Real quick, brief announcement. The Paul Leslie Hour is made possible by people like you. Just go to www.thepaulleslie.com slash support. We thank everyone who's contributing. We think you'll agree with us that Eddie Brill is a comic of and for the people. And we truly hope you enjoy this in-depth interview. It is our pleasure to welcome comedian and actor Eddie Brill. Eddie Brill is a worldwide comic. He's also the warm-up comedian and talent coordinator for The Late Show with David Letterman. Thanks so much for doing this. Oh, it's my pleasure, Paul. I got an email from you, said that you had talked to my pal, Alan Coulter, and now, uh, you know, I'm sure if it's good for Coulter, I'd be more than happy to be on the show. <laughs> well, I think <laughs> I think most stories are best from the beginning. So tell us a little bit about where you came from. I'm originally from New York, and I lived there as a kid till I was just about 12, and then moved to Hollywood, Florida which is the other end of the spectrum, you know, from Brooklyn, New York. I uh, went to junior high school and high school there, and it was pretty nice. And uh, never thought I'd do any comedy, or I always loved comedy. And it was, I loved George Carlin. He was my hero, and Richard Pryor, and all the comedians I would listen to on album. Uh, and I was, you know, all ready to maybe go into college to go for math or science. But my stepfather, who was very young and very close to us, uh, died very young. And I just changed my whole life and decided, you know what, I was going to do things that were really fun in life because you didn't know how quick it could be over. So I changed my sort of dream to go into maybe broadcast journalism. And I went to a college in Boston for that, Emerson College, and met all these uh, very funny people at the beginning of school. And we formed a comedy group. And it was the first foray I ever had in comedy. And it was a lot of very successful people. And uh, successful people now, and a lot of people who are involved both on both sides of the industry, you know, people like the president of Comedy Central and then, you know, like Dennis Leary and, you know, a mixture of a lot of different kinds of people. But one of our best friends was Stephen Wright, and he was doing stand-up 
So we would go watch him, and it was sounded fun. So we started doing a little stand-up. Um, I did it for a little bit during college. And then when I graduated, I moved back to New York, and I said, you know, I need a real job. And I went into, I quit comedy and did some advertising writing. And I realized I was lying for a living and not making that much money. And I went back into comedy so I can tell the truth for a living and have a much better career. I've never heard it put that way, telling the truth for a living. Yeah, I'm not, since 1984. So in a row, I've done it 25 years. Wow. Now, what do you think it is about comedy that attracts you? Um, well, it's just, you know, it's, it's just so alluring. It's, there's no, you know, the, the feeling of the cathartic feeling of laughing is just so wonderful. And when you make other people laugh, there's no, there's no better feeling. It really is, you know, just, it's, you know, I mean, I can, I'm giving you sound effects. It's, there's no words really describe the feeling and to, to be able to make people laugh is just this is very, very uh, fulfilling. So, you know, and once you get a laugh, it's like a drug. You chase that uh, laugh for the rest of your life. You mentioned just a moment ago George Carlin. Uh, right. Now, who would you say is your all-time biggest influence? It would be George Carlin. And what about what about him do you think makes him so? Um, it's just that, you know, the way he thought, the way he just told the truth, and and was silly. He was smart and silly, and that oh, that was very attractive to me. And a lot of the things I heard him say were sort of echoing the way I thought. So I couldn't get enough of you know somebody who was making people laugh, thinking the way I was thinking. And eventually, that's the path I took. And the beautiful story part of the story is that we ended up becoming close and uh, respecting. He respected what I did, which you know was you know now I can die. <laughs> you know it's. I got my hero to respect my work, and it was a really wonderful thing, and he taught me a lot, and, you know, it was really just a wonderful man, and anybody who's ever met him would say the same story. And it's not like it was just me. He was very good to a lot of people, a lot of people. What about the, the comedians that are, are, are active today, like the young guns? Who out there do you have to give the respect to? Well, Chris Rock, I would think, is the best comic of our generation. Dave Chappelle, um, you know, he's not been around as much in the public side, but still out there at the comedy clubs. He's pretty damn terrific. Uh, you know, there's uh, Jim Gaffigan, uh, Brian Regan, and Jake Johansson, who are sort of really smart, funny network guys. And then there's the people like Norm MacDonald and Nick DiPaolo and Colin Quinn and Nick Griffin, who may be a little darker, but uh, still hilarious and smart and great. And I'm sure there's a million people I'm leaving out. Lewis Black is very funny, and you know there's a there's a good group of really great stand-up comics and young kids like Joe Wong and um, Tommy Jonigan who are you know coming up through the ranks uh, as young guns who are you know Bill Burr who's phenomenal comedian Greg Giraldo you know uh, Louis C K you know there's so many great comics out there really doing smart great stuff. Well, tell us a little bit about this comedy club that you had in New York City called The Paper Moon. Well, what happened was, is I wasn't really thinking of getting back into stand-up. Um, I was working with the group in college, and, you know, because it was so successful, the people we went to college with respected what we did. So there was a gentleman who worked at this restaurant and heard that they wanted a comedy night downstairs in this cabaret room. And he called me because he knew, you know, the connection of 
going to school with these people. Joe Mauricio and uh, we started a comedy at the Paper Moon in 1984. And all of a sudden I was hosting the shows just to, you know, take care of the shows. And I was paying these comedians out of my pocket with my day job just so we can get really good comedians in there. And uh, it just became a comics club where a bunch of really com- great comedians from all over the country uh, could come into the city and, and work out. And it was very widely popular, widely popular. I don't know if those are even two things that go together. Uh, it was widely good and very popular. And uh, it was very successful, and I did that for a while. Unfortunately, there was a the drinking age went up from 18 to 21, and that was a real NYU kind of a place. It was called the Paper Moon. And Adam Sandler was going to NYU at the time, and he would come and work out there, and Colin Quinn would work out there, and Susie Essman, and Mario Cantone, and Paula Poundstone, and Bob Goldthwait, and all these different folks from all over, the, you know, from that era. Dennis Miller would come by and work material out for Saturday Night Live at, at the club. So it was a, a pretty phenomenal place that lasted for a while, but as a comic, I started having some success, and I didn't want to be tied down to this club because I wanted to now get out there and do some good things for myself. Something that I thought was really interesting was uh, your work with Reader's Digest. Yeah, you know, that happened by accident. They, um, Because of the connection at the Letterman Show, oftentimes I'm asked to judge competitions, which is ironic because, you know, you can't really judge comedians. Andy Kemner really said it best when he says, you can't, you know, I'll give you two famous painters, tell me who's the better one. But you can't, it's art subjective. But oddly enough, I was asked to judge this comp- joke competition for his digest. The host got sick or hurt, I think it was hurt, and I was forced to be the host of the show. I worked with them. Um, I It was the thing for Reader's Digest. And um, all of a sudden, their name slips in my mind. I work with them all the time. Uh, and you'll help me with this one. It's uh, Marlo Thomas's uh, charity, St. Jude's. I got so, it. Yeah, St. Jude's. Okay, so it was, it, it was St. Jude's. I was able to figure it out by myself. And I work with them a lot. And I love what they do. So, you know, it worked out really great. And I got very close to both of these organizations so much that I remember their names uh, after prodding. But um, and then I, you know, got involved and they said, we like what you do. Will you help us put together some more shows and uh, be a consultant for us? And then I, they had me come in and work on their website and, and read some of the jokes that came in. And it's just I've had a very, very nice relationship with them. Uh, they, you know, quoted me a lot and they've also printed some of the things that I've written as well. There was a, a TV show that you did a guest spot on. I've always felt like this was one of the funniest TV shows on television. And I tell people the name of the show, and a lot of times people seem to have forgotten it already. But that was uh, Dr. Katz, Professional Therapist. Oh, God, yeah, that was really terrific. You know, as a little boy, I was a cartoon guy, and I loved cartoons. And in my era, you know, I was a cartoon nut, I guess. I don't know. I, I'm sure people are that way now, maybe even with anime or whatever, but growing up, I just loved all of the cartoons, and to be able to be in a cartoon was one fantastic thing, but for them to make a cartoon of you and your voice, it's, you know, like a dream come true, like a little boy's dream come true, and I did Dr. Cass, and it got really great response, and I actually did a second one. Um, I was there recording the same day with a few other comedians. We getting ready for their next season, I think the third season, and the show didn't get picked up, so none of those episodes went out. It would have been nice to 
to do another one. It would have been really fun. Another TV show that you're currently associated with, the the Late Show with David Letterman. That's right. Tell us about how you became associated with Dave. Well, you know, in this business, it's really who you know. You know, you have to deliver once you get to the place with who you know. But uh, Louis C.K. and uh, Bill Sheft, a couple of guys uh, who work at the show, uh, I think Jeff Stilton was there at the time as well, I think. Um, and they had recommended me. They were uh, looking for a warm-up, and I had done some warm-up over the years, and you know nothing really major, but just here and there and there. You know, I actually Dana Carvey show. I actually worked on Saved by the Bell for a very short time in its infancy, and when I was out in L.A. And so I had done a few things. Well, they said they were looking for a warm-up, and I figured, okay, I'll give it a shot. They gave me a six-week trial period, and. And in February of 2010, it'll be now 13 years. You know, during the time I was there, I got to, you know, get to know Dave and get to know the staff and the people there. And eventually I got moved up in 2001 to be the stand-up comedy booker on the show, which is a huge thrill. You know, nobody really in this industry has ever done that position. And there's also a stand-up comic. So, you know, because I am a stand-up and it was my dream to do the show, I know what it's like for other comedians who want to do the show. So I think I, I'm equipped in a in a way that I can really help comedians out in a very good way and treat them the way I would have wanted to be treated if I was, you know, dealing with a booker. And sometimes I'm very good at it, and sometimes I'm not always great at it, but I give it my best shot and try to be as approachable and as honest as you can be, as one can be in that position. Tell us a little bit, of, a little bit more about what that job entails as talent coordinator. Do you listen to like tapes of comedians, or how does that work? Um, there are many, many ways. Uh, one of them is listening to DVDs or VHS tapes of comedians, and I get hundreds and hundreds in a very short period of time, and I have to tackle them all the time. And it works against me as a comedian a little bit because I hear so much comedy. You know, for me to be able to do my own style, I have to really compartmentalize and just think the way I think. And actually, my comedy's gotten better because I'm really just doing stuff that's from my perspective. But back to the question, I, I do look at a bunch of stuff. And I also, um, people will send me their links online. And then, you know, as a comedian, I travel around the world doing shows in different places. And in many of these places, they'll set up showcases for me to look at the local comics. And that really is helpful. Plus, other comics will say, hey, Eddie, I, people I respect, uh, comics I respect will say, hey, Eddie, um, there's uh, a comedian I worked with recently, and she was great, and you know, you should look at her and to put her on the show, or this other person, a manager will call me and say, I, you know, I don't manage this guy, but I saw him at a club, and he's so right for the show. So, you know, everyone knows <clears throat> everybody in the business, kind of, or, you know, and uh, we keep each other informed so that the right people get into the right position. And what exactly are you looking for? I mean, other than uh, a funny person. <laughs> yeah, that's a, very, that's a big one. You know, laughter is good as for a comedian. That's uh, probably number one. And um, no, but really, you know, honestly, it's, it's about we're looking for the real artists, the real one of a kind, you know, the Ray Charles of comedy, the, the, the soulful comics, you know, the people who really have are just, you know, you know that there's no other comics like that in the world. And um, there are uh, there are a smaller percentage of those kind of comedians. You know, the Priors, the Carlins, the Cosbys, 
those kind of guys, the Seinfelds, the you know, through history, the Ray Romanos, and uh, you know, of course, I've skipped ten thousand billion brilliant comics, the one of a kinds, the the ones that you remember, um, not because they're famous, but because they're really great comedians, and that's who we put on the show. We look for that, look for that spark, that one of a kindness, you know, that. But it's got to be smart, and it's got to be silly. It's got to be a combination like that. It's uh, the nice, you know, and. It's not the same style we're looking for, but we're looking for the same kind of uniqueness. And most of the time we get it right. What do you think about David Letterman's comedic delivery? Oh, he's, you know, I mean, he's just one. You know, I would consider him one of the best ever at what, he's, what he does. And, uh, you know, he's really who he is. And there's that one-of-a-kind guy just, you know, stood out from everybody else during that time. And... He's only gotten better and better. And, you know, you the only way to ever get better is to go out there and do it. Well, he's done over 5,000 shows, you know, in, in late night television in the morning altogether. You know, that's that's a nice little uh, catalog of work. So he's really good at what he does. You know, he's brilliant. And he's a great interviewer as well. And he's a very compassionate man. And it's, uh, and uh, you know, silly and fun and... And that all comes across, I believe. And, you know, in this business, all the comedians, the real pure comedians, respect Dave the most. Not that they disrespect anybody else. I mean, there are some incredible people out there that are doing the same thing. But Dave is the guy everyone looks up to. I mean, even Conan, who Brian has said it out loud, he's the man. He's, you know, my hero, and, and this is what, what they do. And, of course, all of us, including Dave, hero is Johnny Carson. Wow. And then all, then all those guys, Johnny Carson, they looked up to, you know, like the Jack Pars and the Steve Allens and the Ernie Kovacs and, you know, it all goes, it's generational. It's just one to the next. Dave is the guy of this era. Our special guest is Eddie Brill, the warm-up comedian for the Late Show with David Letterman. I was hoping you could tell us through your association with the the Late Show. Do you have a favorite memory? You know, there are so many. There's some of the biggest thrills of my life. I mean, again, I feel like I'm a little boy going, you know, and then I, I got a fire truck and then I got a I got a toy boat. You know, I got to meet Sophia Loren. You know, when I was a kid, you know, in my era, all the I'm 51, all of the kids had uh, Farrah Fawcett posters. I had Sophia Loren. Not, I didn't have her, but in my mind I did. But, <laughs> <laughs> you know, but, you know, every night I was there falling asleep with that poster. But um, I got to meet her, and I got to be, you know, I was charmed by her. And I got to sit at the piano with Burt Bacharach and chat with him. And I got to, you know, hang out with George Carlin or Elvis Costello or talk. You know, I mean, it's, again, it, it's, you know, I got a, a big truck. And you know, <laughs> I feel like that kind of a guy. And I, you know, got to hang out with the president. I got to talk with Paul McCartney and... What? It's just, I mean, it's just too much fun. It's too great. And I, you know, I just, I, I'm just very, very blessed. What is the best thing about being Eddie Brill? Ah, that's a weird, interesting question because it's like, oh, what do I say about me? Um, I don't know. I, I'm not a, like, I mean, I'm not ashamed to say good things about myself. I, I know I'm very passionate about what I do. I'm a workaholic. I, I do so many different kinds of things. I'm involved with a lot of things. I, I'm very involved with this comedy festival called the Great American Comedy Festival in Nebraska and Johnny Carson's hometown of Norfolk, Nebraska. 
I'm involved in both sides of the business on the in front of the camera and behind the camera. You know, so that's a big part of who I am. And I guess, um, um, you know, I grew up with very, very humble beginnings, and I appreciate the really cool things that have happened for me. And it's all happened for me because I worked my tail off because I love what I do. So it's, you know, I don't know. I mean, it's uh, I'm proud of my life. I'm really happy with the way it's turned out. You know, any mistakes I made along the way, I don't regret. You know, I just have to move on and and learn from them and, and you know, try to get better and better. And, and, you know, I just have to make sure that I'm always true to my, you know, values and beliefs. And as long as I can do that and get the respect and integrity of my friends um, and peers, then I'm doing okay. So those are the good things, you know. I mean, you know, I, it's a hard question to answer, but I just talk for an hour about it, I guess. <laughs> well, I have two final questions. I asked okay. Ellen Coulter this one. New York City has absolutely some of the best places you can eat. Right. Where do you like to eat in New York City, and what do you get when you go there? Well, you know, there again, it's like, you know, do you have two hours? We can do a whole show on this, <laughs> you know. Um, but there's a place in the East Village that no one knows about. Maybe now everyone will know, hopefully, uh, called Cafe Orlan, O-R-L-I-N. And it's open 24 hours on the weekend. And during the week, it's open until midnight. And they have breakfast till 4. And it's the most nondescript place. you got to really find the name, which is um, a glass window. It's very hard to find. But it's a little place that's so humble and so unique, and the food is fantastic. There's not one thing on the menu that's not terrific, and it's hardwood floors and exposed brick and always great music playing in the background, and it's very, very delicious, and it's great. But famous places that are great, I love uh, Mesa Grill, the Bobby Flay restaurant. I did his show. Uh, you know, We didn't get paid in cash, but we got paid in a much nicer way. We got paid dinner for two at Bobby Flay's Mesa Grill. And I've been going there ever since. Southwestern food, really great. And also I love the Red Eye Grill, which is almost in a very touristy part of town, but they have some of the best seafood in New York. And there's, there's so many great, like I said, we can go for hours, you know. Uh, it's the, 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 if a tourist comes to New York City, they should ask other New Yorkers which restaurants to go to, not, you know, read out of the books and go to the tourist places because most of the tourist places are mediocre, you know, run of the mills. In fact, in Times Square in New York, where all the tourists are, there are no original restaurants with, you know, any flair or um, one-of-a-kindness or the uniqueness that is really New York. It's more like Disney World there, where there's, you know, all these, you know, famous chain restaurants selling processed food that, you know, all frozen stuff that comes off of a truck, you know, to the, to the every, probably every restaurant in Times Square gets the same delivery and they just put a different name on it. You know, I mean, that, that's not what New York is about. If you're going to eat in New York, stay away from Times Square. You know, if you want to see New York, stay away. If you really want to see what New York is, stay away from Times Square. Wow. Well, my final question for Eddie Brill, this broadcast goes out all over the world. So what would you like to say to all the people who are listening in? Um, hmm, okay. Uh, you know, uh, I would just say to not take life very seriously. Um, it's very short. And, you know, you should take risks in this world. 
Because if you do, you're going to either go really high or you're going to really go low. And you know what? If you go up and down and up and down, if you look at it like it's a graph, like an EKG machine, that means you're alive. But if you don't live life and you just take the safe way out all through the rest of your life, you might as well be dead because you're just flatlining. You know, so, you, you know, that's my one message to live life. And also, don't care what it looks like when you when you make a mistake or don't care how it looks when you fall because in reality at least you're in the game and you're not on you're not on the sidelines pointing and judging other people you're in there giving it a shot and that i guess that would be sort of the biggest philosophy i live my life by very well put thank you so much mr brill it's been a pleasure to speak to you it's my pleasure paul and uh, good luck to you Thank you for stopping by today. If you enjoyed our program, consider telling a friend about it. The Paul Leslie Hour is made possible through people just like you. So you want to keep the show going, right? Go to thepaulleslie.com. That's thepaulleslie.com. Click on Support the Show. And thanks to everyone who contributes. Performance of the intro music is courtesy of John Primerano, The Entertainer, written by Scott Joplin. End credit theme music is courtesy of John Primerano, the traditional song, Corina, Corina. Your announcer is Dan Gold. Hey, that's me. The show is hosted and produced by Paul Leslie. And we'll see you next time on the Paul Leslie Hour.